0: The teaching text this morning comes from Matthew 21, verses 12 to 14. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so, my name's Pete, as Kayla um, mentioned. Together with my wife, B, we lead a church in central London, part of London called King's Cross. The church is called KXC, not to be confused with KFC. A lot of people come to us expecting great chicken. We provide them with Jesus who can change your life, so, slightly different. Um, Yesterday we got to hang out with some of the, the leaders of this church and of um, Williamsburg TGC and had an amazing time. But I'm aware that as a Brit, the languages are so similar but not always exactly the same. So there's, there's been some clarification on what I was trying to teach through yesterday. I was telling the story of Adam and Eve um, in the Garden of Eden. I said they were running around in the garden in the Nod, living the dream. Um, just thought that would be common language. A number of people came up and said, Yeah, that, that's interesting what you said about Adam and Eve. What the heck is in the knot? Um, it means naked, au naturel. So if there's any other phrases I use this morning, you're like, Can we just get some clarification? Maybe just put your hand in the air. Or I'll try and translate as we go. But um, for, for B and I, this is our first time ever in New York. And um, we, we love your city. New York's unbelievable, right? Isn't this city unbelievable? The second best city in the world. Amazing place. <laughs> Very close to London, but not quite now. I'm obviously joking. We love this city. and More than that, we love this church. Um, we've been tracking TGC for the last five years. John Tyson spent some time in London with our church, and, and we've some, developed some friendships over the years. And we've learned so much from this family of churches, from this community here in Park Slope. So to visit, to hang out, to see what God's doing before our eyes, you, you have no idea how much this means to us. We love you guys. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your vision of cultural renewal across the city. Um, not just us at KXC, many churches around the world watch you guys so thank you for blazing a trail leading away many of us are in your wake learning and one of the reasons we love this church is because we love the leaders in this church and I know I'm just saying what you already know but you, you have unbelievable world class leaders um, Caleb and Allison, Josh and Jess and others that we've met. They are, they are humble. They are passionate about Jesus. They are passionate about the scriptures. They love New York. They love this community. They're committed to what God's doing here. Um, so you guys, you just have amazing leaders and we want to honor you, Caleb and, and your team, um, just for who you are and what you do. Um, so I've been asked to sort of like come into this teaching series, um, Unveiled Faces, um, but before we get into the text, I kind of felt like God gave me a prophetic word for you as a church. Um, it kind of integrates a little bit with the text, so we might have to do some hermeneutical, hermeneutical gymnastics just to make it fit, but we can try that in a minute. Um, But I felt the Lord laid in my heart something that I want to speak over you. Now, am I particularly prophetic? Not really. Um, Do you need to, like, hold this and and weigh it? Um, Absolutely, you do. Um, But let me just throw it out there. As I was praying for you, this was the the verse that was in my mind, that I felt like God wanted to speak over um, TGC Park Slope. And it was that Joshua told the people. In other words, God's speaking to the people and says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Like, consecrate yourselves, ready yourselves, like, buckle in, there's an adventure ahead. Get ready, because tomorrow the Lord wants to do unbelievable things amongst you. Consecrate yourselves now, today, tomorrow, some phenomenal things are going to unfold before your eyes. I I feel like that's what the Lord would want to say over this church. Like, ready yourselves. I'm about to do something in your midst. So what does consecration look like? Well, these are at least three components of consecration. There's a sense of preparation, like, just get ready. Do whatever it takes just to prepare your hearts, prepare your minds. Um, just get ready because God's about to do something. Secondly, there's a sense of pruning. There's a sense of stripping back, which is obviously uncomfortable. Pruning's always uncomfortable, right? Um, and I know that as a family of churches, this has been like a fairly tough season. You've just walked through and there's probably been a sense of like pruning, like the things being stripped back a bit. And whilst that's painful, I ultimately believe it will be fruitful. God prunes because he wants to to prepare people for more fruit. I think that's coming your way. And finally, there's a sense of purification, which maybe links in with the cleansing of the temple passage we're going to look at. Like, just flush your hearts from the idols that will rob you of fullness of life. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. If you take your deepest desires to money and sex and power and fame and all these things, hoping that they will somehow satisfy the deepest longing in your hearts, you're going to end up with a broken heart. You're going to end up with a broken heart. So there's this theme of consecration because tomorrow, like in this next season, God's going to do something remarkable in this church. And you guys get to be a part of it. I think it'll be huge fun. And the story that came to mind as I was praying was the story of John Wesley, who was a British preacher in the 18th century. And he ministered at a time when the British Isles were in a deep, dark depression. The price of gin was at an all-time low, and because of the culture spiraling into chaos, everyone just got wasted on gin like left, right and centre across the aisles, people just getting drunk on gin to sort of numb the pain. In Europe, um, there was a French Revolution that started and civil wars were breaking out all across Europe and it was on the brink of coming to the UK and the British Isles. And if you read the history books, there's there's kind of like this common understanding that the reason the French Revolution and these civil wars didn't come to Britain is because another revolution began, led by Wesley. And a few of his mates. It was called the Evangelical Awakening. And I know it led to other awakenings. Um, Essentially the start of this movement of the church. Moving outside the walls of the church. And the kingdom of God breaking out everywhere. So the church was right at the heart of social reform. They started building schools to educate the poor. They started building hospitals. They started building universities. They were just engaging in culture. And they started proclaiming the gospel. And hundreds of thousands of people were saved. So a different kind of revolution, a kingdom revolution began. And I just have this sense that, that God's stirring something. We feel it in the, in the UK, we feel it in London. i kind of been feeling it as I've been here in New York and seeing what God's doing amongst you, that there's this, this rumblings of if we're going to see culture truly transformed, we need an outbreak of God's kingdom and we need the spirit of God to be poured out upon us. I think there's something stirring in the waters. Now... The story that gets told less about John Wesley, because we we know about the revival and the unbelievable transformation that took place in the UK um, and then beyond. Um, But the story that's told less is about the holy club. Like he had a group of mates that took the pursuit of holiness really seriously. They took the pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus. They took it really seriously and they would gather and they would pray and they would be accountable to one another. And they developed these 22 questions that unless you've got phenomenal eyesight, you won't be able to read. Um, But let me just read some of these questions that like, they would just be asking these of one another, sort of egging each other on, sharpening one another to be more like Jesus. Question number one, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? guilty number two am i honest in all my acts and words or do i exaggerate guilty do i confidentially pass on to another what was told me in confidence like yeah some of the time in fact for example caleb was telling me in confidence last night that he's massively been struggling with no i'm obviously joking um am i a slave to dress friends work or habits can i be trusted am i self-conscious self-pitying or self-justifying did the bible live in me today Do I give it time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else of my faith? Do I pray about the money I spend? Do I go to bed on time and get up on time? How cool is that? In the mix of like, did the Bible live in me today? It's like, did I go to bed on time? Or did Netflix ruin that vision? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I'm not as other people, especially the Pharisee who despised the Republican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment towards, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble or complain constantly constantly? And finally, is Christ real to me? Now imagine being in a community where you know you're utterly loved and you're not gonna be judged and you're not gonna experience condemnation, but you ask these kinds of questions. And just notice how holistic these questions are. They're about your physical well-being. They're about your mental well-being and your emotional well-being as well as your spiritual well-being. So these guys took the pursuit of holiness really seriously and you cannot separate the holy club from the revival that followed, right? As people spent time in the presence of God saying, Jesus, we want to become more like you. We don't want to get wasted on gin. We want to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And a revival took place that transformed the history of our country. Um, I love this account from Wesley's journal. He writes this. Mr. Hall, Hitching, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutching, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. Now these are some of the key movers and shakers in this revival that took place. About three in the morning as we were continuing instant in prayer. I mean, that is a, not a time to be praying, right? Three in the morning. Come on, it's bedtime. What were they thinking? Um, but at three in the morning as they were instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. Not asleep, fell to the ground under the power of the Spirit. As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty. I I love that language. Not fully recovered. Just recovered a little. Still slightly drunk on the spirit, you know, but like, recovered enough. As soon as we recovered a little, from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. So that's written in Wesley's journal. And then what they would do, once they were recovered just a little enough to get on horseback. They would get on their horses. Um, they would ride throughout the country to the towns, the villages, the cities. They would proclaim the kingdom of God, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and hundreds and thousands of people turned towards Jesus. There was one young clergyman that approached John Wesley and said, um, we notice that when you preach the gospel, um, thousands upon thousands come to faith. Like we've seen others preach the gospel, and yeah, people come to faith in their like, ones and twos, but with you, there's something different. Something going on. like Everywhere you go, thousands coming to faith. What is different about you? And this was Wesley's answer. He said, this is the only thing I could describe. I catch fire and people come and watch me burn. I, I, I simply spend time in the presence of God with my mates. And we just hang out, just adoring the person of Jesus, opening ourselves to the power of the Spirit. We simply catch fire and then people come and watch us burn. Um, and I think that's what's stirring in this community. I, I feel like the presence of God um, is going to fall upon you. I mean, He's done that over the last numerous years in your family, and you've seen amazing things happen. But I, I think that's just been about wetting your appetite for more. Um, that many in this room, you're going to catch fire, and people are going to come and watch you burn, and you're going to see some remarkable things unfold. Um, and I know that giving this message—it's kind of easy to say that. It's encouraging. You're like, "Yeah, that sounds fun," but. I, I'm aware that I'm speaking this over you at a time of potential fragility because of some of what you've been through as a community, um, that there's a level of vulnerability. And all I would want to say is someone just coming in for a weekend is that vulnerability is beautiful. It's beautiful to us as, as we've sort of met your leaders and seen the humility and the softness of heart and the hunger for more of God. It's beautiful to us. I believe it's beautiful to the Lord. Um, that actually in your weakness, that's where the power of God is made perfect. Um, and I love this quote from Soren Kierkegaard, who said, With the help of a thorn in my foot, I spring higher than any man with two sound feet. Like some in the room, you'll be walking with a limp, and just longing for more wholeness. And I feel like God would say, it's all right. There's, there's a limp, there's some pain, there's some vulnerability, that's fine. Now let me pour out my power upon you. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. You've experienced a pruning. There's fruitfulness coming. Consecrate yourselves now, today. Tomorrow, God says, I'm going to do something amazing um, amongst you. And now we get to the passage. That was just a warm-up, by the way. So now we're into the passage um, that was read earlier. So this is Jesus cleansing the temple. He entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling. He turned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. There's There's a flushing out of idolatry from the temple, right? Notice that. There's the the holiness that we spoke of with John Wesley that led to this revival. There's a flushing out of the idols so that the kingdom of God can flow. And don't you love it that the very next verse, um, after the cleansing of the temple, verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. As soon as there was this kind of like flushing out of idolatry, there was power for healing. Kingdom activity broke out upon them. So, to understand what's happening here um, in Matthew 21, I want to zoom out for one moment and just give you like a macro understanding of Matthew's gospel. Because Matthew structures his gospel slightly different to Mark, slightly different to Luke, and very differently to John's gospel. Um, Matthew structures his whole biography of Jesus around the Exodus story. So, let me just remind you if you've read the story of the Exodus, that essentially it's the story of. Moses, ultimately God, leading the nation of Israel out of slavery. They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and then through the miraculous intervention of God, um, they come out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. Just imagine that moment, seeing the waters part so that you can walk through on dry land, and after 400 years of slavery, you taste freedom. That must have been unbelievable. They then enter the wilderness where they begin to follow the cloud by day and the fire by night. And then they then have another climactic moment as Moses ascends the mountain and they receive the law, the Torah, um, which was the pathway to human flourishing. That's the best way of understanding the law, the Ten Commandments. Not as a list of do's and don'ts, just to make sure people don't have too much fun. It's guidelines for human flourishing. Like, if you want to flourish, protect and safeguard your relationship with God. If you want to flourish and you want the community to flourish, like murder doesn't really work that well. So like stop killing people because you can't flourish where there's murder. And if you want a whole community to flourish, then don't sleep with each other's husbands and wives. And, and if you want a whole community to flourish, then stop lying and stop stealing and don't covet your neighbor's possessions. And if you want to really flourish, you need to learn how to rest and hang out in the presence of God. Catch fire so that people can watch you burn. These are guidelines for human flourishing. So Moses ascends the mountain, receives the law. Um, and then as they continue their journey, God provides manna that falls from heaven, heaven's bread, to sustain them on the journey until they reach the promised land, a land marked out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, in which they can thrive. It's a cool story, right? Am I on my own? It's it's an amazing story of liberation. Um, So that's the structure. And as you read through Matthew's gospel, you'll notice the structure is exactly the same. So let me walk you through the structure. Um, It starts at least according to this structure, in Matthew 2, where you notice that Jesus comes out of Egypt. Mary and Joseph took him there to hide from Herod, who wanted to kill him. But when it was safe, um, Jesus came out of Egypt. Egypt. He then passes through the waters of baptism in the very next chapter of Matthew 3. And in the very next chapter, Matthew 4, he enters into the wilderness. So anyone reading this with a kind of Jewish framework, knowing the Exodus story, is reading Matthew's account thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus came out of Egypt. He passed through the waters. He went into the wilderness. This sounds like our story. Like, what's going on? But it continues, Matthew 5, Jesus ascends the mountain. And gives the sermon on the... Mount, Sermon on the Mount, which is a new pathway to human flourishing, a new pathway to living under the blessing of God. That's why it begins with the Beatitudes. Here's the pathway to blessing. And then you move on and there's the feeding of the 5,000, like heaven's bread falling on the people to sustain them on the journey. And everyone reading this text knows that Matthew's point is that Jesus is like a second Moses. He's leading a second Exodus. He's leading people to a new creation in which they can live life fully. Not just liberation from Egypt, but liberation from all sin, all evil, all darkness, the evil one, death itself, like a new creation is breaking in upon them in and through the ministry of Jesus. So as we get swept up in Matthew's gospel, by the time you get to Matthew 21, you're aware that this cleansing of the temple somehow has to fit in with this narrative of Jesus is liberating people for the fullness of life they were made for. Like, this is nothing short of new creation that's breaking in upon them. I want to zoom out further still um, and just give you this framework for understanding the the meta-narrative of Scripture. Really simple, then. Um, The narrative of Scripture moves from creation to decreation to recreation. Creation, Creation, this is the bit that I said yesterday where Adam and Eve were running around in the nod, naked. Um, Like in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with one another. This is a vision of, of what it means to be human. Living life fully. No sin, no sickness, no suffering, right? That was the beginning of the story. Then sin enters the story and created order unravels. Not just a breakdown in relationship with God, but a breakdown in relationship with our brothers and sisters and a breakdown in relationship with created order. Everything begins to unravel. And then the story of recreation begins with Abraham. God says, you're going to be a father to this nation and this nation Israel is going to be a vehicle of healing and redemption and restoration. I want to partner with Israel in making all things And Israel followed the same journey as Adam and Eve and said, yeah, we'd kind of rather our own will be done, not so keen on your will being done. We want everything to revolve around ourselves. So the decreation narrative continues. So what does God do? He wraps himself in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Like God in flesh steps into our condition. And all of the sin that led to created order unraveling is loaded upon Jesus at the cross. So the death that we deserve because of our sin falls upon Jesus so that we could experience the fullness of life that he can only provide, right? And then three days after being in the the tomb, he rises from the dead. The firstborn of the new creation. Like this is the story that we're drawn into. We know the end of the story that Christ is coming back. Heaven and earth will become one. And at that point, there'll be no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. God will have made everything new. It'll be like it was in the beginning. When there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering. Humanity fully alive in relationship with their maker. Like This is our story so I want to read you a couple of passages that just maybe illuminate this story and how this story relates to our passage in Matthew 21. So Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Now, again, you've just got to understand that according to the Jewish framework of thought, they believed Eden was like a temple, the dwelling place of God. So as you hear Eden language, I want you to think of the temple. And the temple was the place where heaven and earth collided. So he planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the key bit. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. So you've got this imagery, temple imagery, this garden of Eden, garden of abundance. In the middle of the garden was a river bringing devastating life wherever it goes. That's how the story starts, right? That's the beginning of our story. Now, if you then flick over to the very end of the story, Revelation 22, you're going to get to another text. And it says this in Revelation 22. This is the very last chapter in the whole of Scripture. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. In other words, there's temple imagery, there's a river flowing out of this temple. So it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. This is an image of the new Jerusalem, a metaphor of heaven and earth becoming one. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, that appears again, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The point I'm trying to make is at the beginning of the story, there's a river of life, bringing devastating life wherever it goes the end of the story when everything's restored to how it was meant to be in the beginning, there's a river of life bringing devastating life wherever it goes. The middle of the story, decreation creation is characterized by thirst. There's separation between God and humanity, heaven and earth. And there's this constant, constant thirst. So let's read this, Jeremiah, chapter two, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. Only two, but they're pretty big. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If if the enemy wanted to totally undermine your faith and oppose the purpose of God in your life and in this community, do you know what he'll do? He'll do whatever he can to distract you from drinking from the one well that leads to life. That's just the tactic. The enemy will do what. Every he can do to distract you from drinking from the one well that will lead to life. Augustine put it like this. He said, God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And I don't know about you, but as you look around New York, as we look around London, there's just so much restlessness. Like just growing anxiety and a sense of disconnection with place and disconnection from community and disconnection from self. And, and at the heart of it is they're just drinking from the wrong wells, right? They're taking all of their desires to the wrong places. In the ancient Near East, wells, springs, aquifers, they were the life source for any city. So if you wanted to overpower a city or take a nation, the primary strategy was find the water supply and contaminate it. Like, block it up, pour cement down the wells, do whatever it takes. If you can block off the water supply, it's a ticking time bomb before you take the city, right? That's what the enemy's doing, trying to distract us. Netflix, super helpful. Like, addiction to our iPhones and devices, just very effective. Like, rather than spending time in the scriptures, time in the presence of God where we catch fire, and then people come and watch us burn, like, we're just, we're, you know, numbing ourselves, and we're drinking dirty water. Um, Psalm 42, this is King David. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And I don't know if any of you grew up in church and were around during the 80s. Just hand in the air if you were around. You know, some of you were rescued from that, so well done. Um, But there was a song that... Many churches would sing. I'm going to just embarrass myself and go for it. But if I sang the first line, just join me in the second. So as the deer, Ooh. very good, very good. Someone said panteth, which was I was just going to go for pants, but panteth is is a nice addition. Um, I I thought everyone would leave me hanging. So well done for actually joining me in that. Um, so we had this image, didn't we, that when we were singing that song, and back in those days, we didn't have screens with projectors. We had overhead projectors where someone would literally, with the acetate, put their finger down, just follow it down. Every so often, someone was feeling just a little bit like, ah, oh, I'm doing this, and they'd go above. And, just, and anyway, but sometimes on the screen, there'd be a picture of a, a, of a deer. Um, and it would be like just dancing across lush meadows, and then drinking in this delightful pool. And that's, and because the melody of the song is just quite, na, na, na. Everyone just imagine this is like a beautiful image of like green pastures and still waters. You know, similar to Psalm 23. It's just not the image. That, that isn't the image. A closer image would be something like this. Like the, the, language, of, the language of the psalm is actually of a deer dying of dehydration. Okay, I'm not meaning to be funny, that's the imagery. It's actually quite offensive and, and it hits you hard. David is saying, like, as the deer pants for the water, my soul pants for you. It's like <laughs> in other words, I'm dying. I, I need someone to rescue me. I can't survive. This thirst is overwhelming me. Somebody rescue me. It's not as the deer. It's a picture of intensity. God, I know what I was made for. I was made for the river. I know the end of the story, there'll be a river. Like, send the river now, because I'm dying in the desert. Psalm 63, David says, You, God, and my God, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. Listen to the intensity of the language. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I want to be back in Eden. I want to be in the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem where heaven and earth are colliding, there's no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. This is too much. This is just so painful. You know this because, you know, Charity Water is connected somehow with this family and Scott Harrison. But you all know the amazing work they're doing in providing clean water um, to the world. And, And you'll therefore know that the second biggest killer in the world, taking more lives than any dictator in history, more than any civil war, more than any natural disaster, the second biggest killer is dirty water. People not having access to dirty water, and therefore cholera and dysentery and all these other things kick in. And I would say it's true that the biggest spiritual killer today is dirty water. People drinking from other wells that don't bring life, and it's killing them. These wells can't satisfy you. Success in your workplace, it'll feel good for a bit. It won't satisfy your deepest longings. Some sort of sexual encounter might feel great in the moment. It won't satisfy your deepest longings. Just a whole load of more money, a little bit of fame, feel good for a while. It won't satisfy your deepest longings. And that's why C.S. Lewis put it pretty strong. As I said before, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. So... David experienced this thirst. Israel experienced this thirst. And then came some prophecies that brought hope. And when you're dying... And experiencing dehydration and longing for the river. Some prophetic words saying that the river's coming. That's going to bring hope, right? Let me just give you some of the prophetic words. This is Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And notice that's exactly what's happening in Matthew 21. The blind and the lame come to the temple and experience healing. In other words, the river's beginning to flow. That's the prophecy. Then the lame will leap like a deer. So the deer will actually be dancing around in the lush meadow. So it does happen in the end. And the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, And the thirsty ground bubbling springs. This is God speaking through Isaiah, saying the river's coming. The river's coming. And kingdom activity will break out. And there will be signs and wonders. Hold on. Don't quit. Don't lose hope. The river's coming. Isaiah 51, then the Lord will comfort Zion and look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden. This is a vision of restoration, right? Recreation. Her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of singing. It's like imagery of Eden, delight, joy, abundance. And then the final prophetic word, Ezekiel 47, which is this very beautiful vision of the river flowing out of the temple, bringing devastating life. Like Eden, like the New Jerusalem. Let's read it. The man, this is an angelic visitor. The man brought me to the back of the... Back To the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, "This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Araba where it enters the Dead Sea when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because." The water flows there and makes the salt water fresh, so where the river flows, everything will live. Not some things, everything will live. Devastating life. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enanglame, and there'll be places for spreading nets. Now just imagine Ezekiel like speaking out this prophetic word. There would have been ripples of laughter as he shared the word. Because everyone knows that if you see someone casting a net into the Dead Sea, they probably need to see a shrink. And uh, they probably need some help because it, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. Like, it's dead. Nothing lives there. So when Ezekiel says there'll be a time when, like, the banks will be just lined up with fishermen, and everyone will be like, <laughs> that's so funny, people fishing in the Dead Sea. That's not going to happen. And Ezekiel's saying, yeah, yeah, it will. There, there'll be a time where this river just brings devastating life. And and there'll be people just fishing in this river. Um, The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. The river's coming. Consecrate yourself today. Tomorrow, God wants to do something really amazing amongst you. Like the river's coming. So there's a river of life in the beginning. There will be a river of life when Christ returns. Decreation is characterized by thirst. But you need to know that that prophecy is being fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus, through the outpouring of the Spirit. And the Spirit right now is bringing life through local churches around the world. The river is flowing. So final passage I want to look at is John 7 which has a similar theme to Matthew 21 uh, 21, of cleansing the temple so that the river can flow. So this is what it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So there's a festival. Um, We know that that festival was the festival of booths. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles and it commemorated the moment where the people of God journeyed through the wilderness and God decided that he would be amongst them in a tent in a tabernacle. So they celebrate that story that God isn't some sort of distant deity. He actually decided to come and live in a tent. I don't know what you think about camping, but I hate camping. So the idea of God who would tolerate camping just to be near me. That's a beautiful vision. (laughs) Don't you think? That God isn't distant from you saying I'm not going to get involved in that mess. That's That's messy. But no, no, I, I don't like camping either, but I'm going to choose to be near you because I so want to be near you. I'll, I'll put up with camping. That, that's a beautiful vision. So they would celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. And on the final day, they would do this ritual where they would start in the temple. Um, and they would process down the mountain because the temple was on a mount. And at the bottom of the south side of the mount, there was a pool, the Pool of Siloam. And they would take these big water jars and they would scoop up loads of water into the jars and they would process back up the mountain to the temple. And when they got back into the temple, they would pour the jars on the altar of the temple and water would begin to flow out of the temple, back down the mountain. And it was a way of saying, God, we haven't forgotten the prophecy of Ezekiel 47. It's our deepest longing. Like life under Roman rule is killing us. They're financially crippling us. They're humiliating us. We... we we're being ruled over by an oppressive regime. This isn't what we were made for. We know the stories of Eden and we've heard the prophecies of Ezekiel 47 and we're not gonna let go. That's where we find hope that the river will flow and it will bring life to us. And we're really thirsty right now. We want more life. And Jesus interrupts the procession. I don't know what point of the procession, are they literally back up in the temple pouring out water and he just shouts above the commotion and says, whoever believes in me, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. In other words, this ritual, you don't need to do it anymore. Hey. (laughs) Break for freedom, I love it. Um, The ritual points towards the coming of the Messiah. And in that coming of the Messiah, the kingdom of God will break in. Signs and wonders will break in and there'll be a river of life bringing devastating life wherever it goes. Jesus interrupts the ritual and says, it points towards me. So if you're thirsty and people in the room were thirsty, that's why they were still doing the ritual. If you're thirsty, come to me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's going to fulfill that prophecy. Come to me and drink. And notice the second part. Not only will it satisfy your thirst, you'll become a river. You'll become a river. This isn't just about you. It's what's going to happen through you amongst those that you work with in your workplaces, in your communities, on your streets. Your thirst will be satisfied. You'll become a river. And there's this beautiful progression through the narrative of like, through the narrative of Scripture, there's always been a meeting point of heaven and earth. Even, you know, after Eden, where there's this separation between God and humanity caused by sin and separation between heaven and earth, there's always been a point of intersection, a point of overlap. It starts with Eden, then it becomes the temple in Jerusalem. They believe that that's where God resided, that heaven and earth met in the temple. And then in the gospel narrative, Jesus begins to say, well, I'm the new temple. I'm the place where God resides. I'm the meeting point of heaven and earth. If you want to experience heaven, hang out with me. And that's what we read of in the Gospels. that The ways of heaven just break out all around Jesus. Like sick people experience healing. Demonically oppressed people are set free. Dead people come back to life. Orphans are drawn into family. Widows are drawn into community. Those on the margins find family once more. Like the kingdom of God's breaking out all around them, right? Because this is the meeting point of heaven and earth. And then Paul builds on that and says to the church in Corinth, and he'd say it over you, TGC, this morning. Like You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like the river is within you, and the river should flow out from you, bringing devastating life wherever it goes. Like heaven and earth collide in your very being right now. So we should expect some signs and wonders. We should expect some incredible things to happen around us. We should expect that when we go into the workplace, it shifts the environment and changes the atmosphere. That when we move onto the street, somehow something on the sh- street begins to shift because we're the meeting point of heaven and earth. And ultimately, as you say here at TGC, we get to join with God in the renewal of all things. Like This is an amazing story. And Essentially, my message is this. I believe God wants to do something extraordinary in your midst. Like I know the river's been flowing. You've seen people come to faith and come back to faith and come alive in their faith and ministries have been established and lots of creative ways of engaging in culture in New York. Amazing! There's more. There's more. So consecrate yourself today. Like Do whatever it takes to flush the stuff out of your hearts that gets in the way, that blocks up the river. Consecrate yourself this day. Tomorrow, God wants to do something amazing amongst you.